One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings fellow time travellers, great to have you with me as we travel through space and time together. To help support the making of this podcast series, and I hope you want to do that, sign up to my patreon.com site. It's easy to join and you'll be making possible the whole podcast series. Uh, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, and then you have to part with a little bit of cash. You can pay by the month or you can pay by the year. And it is cheaper if you go in for the full year. But however you want to do it, uh, just follow the Yellow Brick Road, follow the instructions and sign up. And I'd love to see you there. Right, it's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Throughout history, single individuals have managed to change the narrative for millions or even billions of people. As the First World War shatters Russia, with millions dead and her economy in tatters, one such person steps onto the world stage. Working as a lawyer in Russia, he is jailed for his opposition to the government. Exiled to Siberia, he flees to Europe. But eventually, his call for peace, land and bread strikes a chord. And he and the Bolsheviks transform their country and the world forever. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In last week's episode, we travelled with you to France as war ripped the world apart. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Hello, fellow time travellers. Yes, as you say, last week, uh, we were amongst the chaos and the carnage of the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the deadliest single day in all of British military history. This week, we're travelling to Russia, another country where the people are being devastated by the First World War and its seismic shocks. It's 1917 and we're in Petrograd as Lenin and his comrades step out of the sealed train and revolution takes hold. We're in Russia, St Petersburg, also known as Petrograd, well, subsequently known as Leningrad, but we're there during the First World War, and it's the time of revolution in Russia. And specifically, the love letter this week is about 
Lenin's arrival uh, and the and the difference that Lenin made. We've touched on it numerous times over and over in the story of the world. It has been single individuals, you one person at a time, who've changed everything or changed the lot of billions of people, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. But it is extraordinary that it can be, you know, on a planet populated by billions of people, that, that one person, by their actions or or really just by communicating their, their thoughts and their philosophy, can, you know, can turn the world on its head. It's quite extraordinary. And it's a, it's a useful reminder of the power of the individual. People routinely feel powerless, don't they? Uh, you know, that, well, what, what difference is it? Can I make? What can I do? But as it turns out, as has been shown repeatedly, one person can, can do it all. Obviously, name check the Buddha, uh, Confucius, Jesus Christ, uh, Muhammad, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who just by what they did or what they said made people see the world differently. So, uh, to get to the matter in hand, at 11pm on the 16th of April 1917, uh, a man named Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov stepped down from a train, a steam train that had just arrived at the Finland station in the Russian imperial capital, which is to say, well, Petrograd or St. Petersburg, its name changed back and forth. Um... St. Petersburg, I've been in St. Petersburg, spent some time there filming A History of the Vikings years ago, uh, and St. Petersburg uh, was foundational to Russia. It's there in Russia's origin story, part of the seedbed from which Russia grew in ancient times, and it was the seat of the Tsars. It was where the Tsarist rulers of Russia had their palace and the seat of their power. I say Vladimir Ilyich Ilyanov, but 15 years prior, that individual had adopted a pseudonym, really for his own protection. He took on the name Lenin. And it was as Lenin that he would change the world, not as Vladimir Ilyanov. The Finland station in St. Petersburg, there was an American author and critic called Edmund Wilson, and he wrote a magisterial history of revolutionary thought uh, called To the Finland Station. And he uh, described the specific destination as, quote, a shabby stucco station, rubber grey and tarnished pink. So you get from that that it was, you know, hardly the the glamorous setting that you'd imagine for a, for a great moment. Apparently it's hardly even suitable as a principal station for a capital city. But there it was uh, that Lenin arrived in his homeland after years spent in exile, and he, he had come back as a would-be revolutionary. He was going to turn Russia upside down. Years later, Winston Churchill, who was also a historian, uh, he would look back on that moment of Lenin's arrival in the Finland station, and he would describe Lenin as a plague bacillus that had been injected into a Russia 
that if Russia had been a person, that person was already terribly weakened by war, by the privations of the First World War, and that as a result of that weakening, Russia lacked, you might say, the, the necessary immune system that might have made the person that was Russia able to fight off the infection that Lenin brought with him. And so to kind of develop the the metaphor, you might see the train, you might picture the train as the needle of a syringe plunged deep into the the flesh of Russia and delivering uh, the disease of communism. Other people will have other opinions about communism, but I see it as 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 only a bad thing. Uh, you know, the lesson, one of the lessons of the of the 20th century and into the 21st century is that wherever communism has taken hold, it has always and only ended up in piles of corpses. You set it alongside all the other ways of governing a country, all the other philosophies, um, but communism has only ever hurt people, I would say, once it plays out in whatever scene, you know, plays out in Russia, plays out in China, plays out in Cambodia. It's always bad news, but other people will have other opinions about that. But that's the tone that I would take. Uh, so Lenin steps down through his train and his followers and supporters are, are there. Uh, they've, they had erected a triumphal arch uh, for him to pass beneath. Uh, and uh, as, he, as he came on, as he made his way through the, through the, the station, a band played rebel tunes like La Marseillaise and and uh, uh, apparently there was a large crowd of well-wishers uh, but uh, Victor's writing history who knows really maybe maybe it was maybe it wasn't maybe it was maybe it was quite a small group of people but hard to tell now Lenin had dreamt of revolution what it had been his life's work since 1887 in that year his brother uh, had been executed for his part in a plot to murder the then Tsar Alexander III. And so that sparked in him this, you know, so revenge was part of it uh, for Lenin. And he, he trained in the aftermath of his brother's death. He trained and then worked as a lawyer. And by 1895, uh, he was helping to organise Marxist groups in St. Petersburg. We've already looked at the publishing of the Communist Manifesto written by Marx with help from Friedrich Engels and that had published for the first time in London in 1848 so by you know 1895 let's say it's reached Russia and, and Lenin's amongst those trying to preach and promulgate the, this philosophy and well Lenin was arrested in Petrograd in the December of 1895 um, along with other leaders of what they had established as the Union for the Struggle for the Liberation of the Working Class. You can hear the you can hear the tone of the the Communist Manifesto there. And he was convicted, and he was jailed for a year. And after his year in prison, he was exiled to Siberia for another three years. After the time spent in Siberia, he was out of Russia. He was he was abroad in Europe, various places. Uh, he was in London for some of the time. By 1903, he was part of the... He's still in exile. He was part of the founding of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party. And it was from within 
the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party that t- two factions form Bolshevik and Menshevik. And the Bolshevik, Bolshevik means the majority and Menshevik means the minority. And Lenin sided with the Bolshevik part of that party. And the Bolsheviks were in favour of military action, you know, blood and bullets to achieve their, their desired ends. The Menshevik received their final humiliation at the All-Russian Congress of Soviets in St. Petersburg in November 1917, when Leon Trotsky dismissed the Mensheviks into the dustbin of history, thereby coining that phrase, the dustbin of history. There was a first revolution, a, a, a dry run of revolution in Russia in 1905, and Lenin, Lenin came back for that. But Tsar Nicholas II, Nicholas II of the Romanov line, he was able to bring it to an end by doing what monarchs and autocrats under pressure invariably do, which was by promising reform, promising to change his ways. Uh, so he, 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 tamped down the, he tamped down the fires of revolution, but then he welched on the deal. He went back on his word. And we, well, we, we all know the way that would end up playing out, but you know, it was an evolving story. And so by 1907, Lenin was in exile again, <laughs> having having briefly returned. He was he was on the run again. Had, you know, had to get away to save his own skin. Then we come to the First World War, and during World War One, no other country was hurt more severely than Russia. Britain was terribly hurt, France was terribly hurt, Germany was terribly hurt, of course they were, but no one was hurt as badly as Russia. Lost more men, the economy shattered. It was worse in Russia than it had been anywhere else. Uh, and by, by the March of 1917, there were riots in St. Petersburg. The people were starving and they were demanding food. And this time soldiers joined in. So soldiers who were every bit as desperate as the workers and the rest of the population, they they joined in in support of the of the protests. Uh, and on March the fifteenth, nineteen seventeen, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated, walked away from his throne. And in the aftermath of of, uh, of the end of Tsarism, there was initially a provisional government, a temporary government. It was always and only supposed to be temporary. It was it was led by the Minister of War, Alexander Kerensky. He had it all to do, really. He had trouble on all fronts. And in amongst it all, he sought to mollify the Soviets. Soviet is a word that means uh, workers' councils. Uh, and these coun- councils of really workers and soldiers, uh, r- representative of, of territories, of, of areas w- within Russia. And so Kerensky was firefighting on all fronts. So this provisional government that, that was set up in the aftermath replaced centuries of Czarist rule, been czars for you know for for hundreds of years, and and now it was abruptly over. By that point, by 1917, Lenin was in Zurich, and he had been living quietly in Zurich, in Switzerland, with his wife uh, Nadezhda Krupskaya. He was in his late forties, obviously, a man in his late forties in 1917 was you know he, he thought he was past it. Basically, he thought his, his days of fermenting revolution were behind him. But as history saw to it, 
Germany, you know, with the war still to fight, saw an opportunity to knock Russia out of the war. Kerensky and his provisional government had maintained the war effort despite mounting opposition. The soldiers didn't want it anymore, the people didn't want it anymore, uh, but, but Kerensky had attempted to keep it going. But in amongst it all, for all sorts of reasons, Kerensky's provisional government had been weak and ineffectual from the beginning. No one wanted them. So they were fighting foreign and domestic enemies at all times. Russia was, was with the Allies. You know, Russia was with France, with Britain, against Germany. And it mattered. It was an enormous force. And it, it was deemed critical. You know, Russia's role, weakened or not, was critical. But Germany saw this opportunity and the Kerensky administration had been weak and, and ineffectual really from the get-go, fighting effectively opposition foreign and domestic. And it never really stood a chance. Um, and Germany saw Lenin and his lieutenants in exile as the potential for a knockout punch. You know, the, literally the last thing that Russia needed if it was going to stay in the war, the impact of, of Lenin and his cronies, as Germany saw it, was going to make all the difference. And so he was put aboard a train, Lenin and, and the rest of them, Lenin and Nadezhda, his wife, and, and his, you know, his, his loyal hardcore, a train departing Zurich at 3.10pm on the 9th of April, 1917. And this was the fabled sealed train that, that, that many people will have heard about, that went straight through Germany and Sweden and Finland without customs checks. The idea that, you know, the train had never been. It was like a ghost train. It was never there. No one acknowledged its existence. However, that was really the way that Lenin told it, burnishing his own legend and his own mystique. I mean, the fact is they got out in Frankfurt <laughs> for an overnight break in a hotel. Uh, they did not stay sealed on the train for the duration of the journey. The conditions aboard were simple. You know, there was not, not much in the way of luxury. Uh, Lenin himself controlled access to the toilets. The story goes that he, he issued first-class tickets for people who actually needed to use the facilities and handed out second-class tickets to people who just wanted to get into the toilets for a quiet smoke. Uh, there were German soldiers on the train for the duration of the journey, watching the, the Russians' every move. There was even a chalk line across the middle of a compartment which served as the border because Russia and Germany were at war and so this was like a a, a border between the, the two states the train loaded was loaded onto a ferry across the Baltic Sea from northern Germany the train stopped again in Stockholm in Sweden and Lenin and his lieutenants got off for another break you know, thereby further puncturing the myth of the sealed train then they passed through the what was then the Grand Duchy of Finland before turning south into Russia and towards St. Petersburg. The scene of Lenin's arrival, the scene of the train and, and the, the climbing down from the train was imagined and painted years later by a Soviet artist called Mikhail Sokolov. Directly behind Lenin, like on his shoulder, is Joseph Stalin. Stalin was another pseudonym. He was um, Joseph Vizarionovich Zhugashvili. 
in reality, but like like Lenin, he took on a pseudonym. And in this painting by Sokolov, Stalin is grinning over Lenin's shoulder. And Stalin wasn't even there. <laughs> Stalin wasn't on the train. But, you know, obviously wished with all these self-serving heart that he had been. And so uh, you can imagine Sokolov being left in no doubt that, that Stalin had to be worked into the scene of the return of the conquering heroes. Anyway, Lenin set to work at once, preaching the, the Marxist gospel of revolution. And first and foremost, he was demanding the overthrow of the Kerensky government. You know, that was the, the, the first obstacle between him and power. Th things actually didn't go as planned. He comes in in the April, and by July, he's been labelled a German agent, which he was, <laughs> in, in, in as much as he was serving German ends. But identified thusly, he, he, he had to make a run for it, and he back in Finland by July. However, to get back to that original analogy of, a, of an infection, the infection of communism had taken hold of the body of Russia. It was a nation on its knees, and the people were starving. And Lenin listened intuitively to what the people said they wanted, and he came up with a slogan about peace, land and bread. And frankly, that was what the people wanted to hear. No more war, give us access to land of our own that we can grow crops on, grow food on, and give us bread. And Lenin, you know, was giving the people what they wanted, what they thought they wanted. By October, so, you know, he, he's briefly in exile again in Finland, but by October he's back yet again and forever, back in St. Petersburg. And the following month, his Red Guards, the Red Guards of the Bolshevik Party, replaced the provisional government with rule by Soviet, rule by workers' councils, workers-soldier councils. And there we have it. I mean, when it, when it comes to a moment in the story of the world, Lenin's arrival in St. Petersburg in 1917, that's a moment. Because from that point on, Russia and the world would never be the same again. In 1918, Europe and the world in general is exhausted by war. As one horse of the apocalypse leaves, the next, deadlier one appears. And on the 11th of March 1918, Sergeant Albert Gitchell, an army cook in Kansas, comes down with what he calls a bad cold. As much as a third of the world's population is infected, with estimates of deaths ranging from 20 to 100 million people. Apparently, the deadliest pandemic of all time. Next time, in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address. It's an easy one for these complicated times. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, for t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and lots more to come. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon, 
Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 